Dr. Francois Clemens is perhaps best known as Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood's Officer Clemens. He made history as the first African-American actor to have a recurring role on a children's television program. He received a Bachelor of Music degree from Oberlin College, an MFA from Carnegie Mellon University, and an honorary degree from Middlebury College. In 1973, he won the Grammy Award for a recording of Porgy and Bess. In 1986, he founded and directed the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. And from 1997 until his retirement in 2013, Clemens was the Alexander Twilight Artist in residence and director of the Martin Luther King Spiritual Choir at Middlebury College in Vermont, where he currently resides. Dr. Francois S. Clemens, welcome to the creative <laughs> process. Yes, and so you have your newly published, by the time this appears, newly published memoir called Officer Clemens, and that's the way I think that many people may have known you if they haven't heard you singing in many operas and other projects you've been involved with, but many of us know you from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Tell us a bit about the genesis, because your memoir takes in not just your, your time on, as Officer Clemens, but that, back to your childhood. So tell us about Tell us about that story. Perhaps you could read a uh, passage for us. I'll be very glad to. But first, I just want to say thank you very much. Uh -huh. And it is indeed an honor to be with you. I love being on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I want to say that first. He was my guru, my surrogate father, uh, my, many times my inspiration, the unconditional love that every human being needs. Uh -huh. And I found that I had found a home, finally. But in order to understand the guy who arrived in Pittsburgh at WQED to work on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I thought it was very important that you get a sense of the feeling, of the roots, of the influences. And quite frankly, one of the reasons that the influences, I live in a matriarchy, mm -hmm. not a patriarchy, although the overriding umbrella are white American men. Mm -hmm. My world was dominated by black women. Right. And there is something about that experience, I think, that gives me a little different perspective and a nuance on what's happening around me, how it's affecting us, how it's affecting me, and how I relate to other people, to other men, and the deep identification that I have with women. So much so that I'm very happy with my physical abilities here, what God has given me, but when I'm creative or when I'm thinking and when I stop, I am a woman. Right. My femininity takes over. And she's the one who uh, taught me how to sing. Mm -hmm. She's uh, that, that feminine self nurtured me through the most difficult times before I got to Mr. Rogers. Mm -hmm. And learning about myself and spirituals and the tradition of black people mm -hmm. came from the women's perspective. They talked to me and I listened. But the other thing, they weren't saying things that other people at school were saying. For example, they were the ones who really said, hold your head up high. Yes. Don't apologize for being uh, black and poor or whatever adjectives they put onto it. But you're as good as anybody and you can do this, you can do that. That was a... The Creative Podcast is supported by the John... <laughs> Deep sense of personhood that they established that I never got from any men until Fred. And so I found it very, very interesting to kind of analyze it while I'm writing. Why do you write this perspective and why has it worked out this way from your standpoint? And so I wanted to talk about that the grit of that, what's around that root 
out of um, Mississippi and then into uh, Birmingham and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Yeah. And I, I didn't feel people who read the book would understand everything or enough if, they, if I didn't give them this gift of fulfillment. There's, there's something deeply fulfilling about who I was before I ever met Fred Rogers. Right. I, I wasn't just born, you know, in his studio. Mm -hmm. And in America, people always feel that, I think, it's my personal opinion, that white people have to be directing you or white people have to be dominant or organizing mm -hmm. or underwriting and all that kind of stuff for something to be what it is yeah. when it gets to that point. That's not my case. Mm -hmm. It started out with my great-grandmother and my grandmother and my mother and then the women of the church, oh my goodness, just like the Democratic Party is talking so much about the sustaining the life that the black women, particularly in South Carolina and Florida and a number of other states, where they have organized and they are they are as dependent as the sun coming every day. And that understanding of the long term gratification, the long term accomplishment kept me doing what I was doing in spite of the fact that I felt I was being ignored. So I said, you know, there are advantages to, be, to being ignored. A lot of it that you can develop uh, away from the limelight. I think in life we all experiment. We, we, there are things that we begin with that are appropriate, but as we move along the, the, the scale, we let them go and we add something new. And that's what I thought I was given an opportunity because my writing has improved and my singing is still you know, right there, and eminently available to me. I can't tell you what a blessing that is. Yeah. So when I have something to say, primarily it was through music. And I knew that I had the ability to do a book of words, but it took a while. Because I, I didn't just start writing. I was very busy making a living. And, you know, as a singer at a theater in New York City, it doesn't allow for a lot of leisure and a lot of uh, deflection here and there. You must be focused on whatever your goals are, and um, then you can see your work grow and become fulfilled in that sense. And there are so many things that I wanted to do musically that I, where there were there were doors that were closed to me. Yeah. And we can start with oh, things like the Metropolitan Opera, where I never sang because I, I had a sexual issue with one of the people, and he closed doors. So I had to look somewhere else. It's the grit of those women that hold your head up high, know who you are, and say, look over here, try this, try something else then, because that door will not decide what I'm going to do. I will decide it. I was interested, as you said, it's the, your feminine aspect that you learned so much you you said that there was the women's parts and you would see them performed and you would be, be inhabiting oh, yes. those yes i was butterfly honey <laughs> you were, but you're also buttercup, so I hear you were buttercup as well. Yes, I'm buttercup and butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Buttercup was the sweet soul that I was born with, that I covered up. For yeah. years and years, I covered him up. I love buttercup. My love for the boy, the naive uh, kid that was not allowed to be himself and to grow, uh, 
has a place inside of me that's incredibly difficult to uh, to to explain because it's so rooted in every everything that I am. That that Buttercup boy uh, survived. He he um, found ways of still saying yes to the universe, back to whatever created us, mm-hmm. rather than being defeated and thrown away. Uh, so the fact that you bring Buttercup up, I think it's pretty interesting and important because uh, in some ways, because I was Buttercup until I was about five, mm-hmm. that is, uh, is who I really am. Mm-hmm. And that means that there's music, there's literature, I'm profoundly empathetic. In fact, I've had healing in my hands. My Aunt Clara, my Aunt Emma, my Aunt Hattie, my Aunt Cora, mm-hmm. <laughs> my Aunt Bessie, they used to ask me, put your hands on my knees here, boy. I, they hurt. My, my arthritis is acting up, my rheumatism. And I used to put my hand, as a young boy, I didn't know what I was doing, I just put my hand on her knee. Lord, I mercy, I feel so much better. All right, baby, she gave me a kiss. Thank you. It was it was a unconditional love mm-hmm. of an aunt mother with her uh, uh, child. Mm-hmm. They, they were my surrogate mothers. Yes. And so, so I wanted that energy to be shared in this this, this first presentation. Everything I write from now on will have come out of that root. Right. In a way, you were kind of a, a, a tuning fork for them as you were healing them, if to use the metaphor, you know, to, to set Boy. them right. Um, you go deep. <laughs> you go deep. But maybe I was seven when I realized. Please try to hear me when I tell people this. I don't want them to think the wrong thing, but I want them to know the truth. Yes. I knew that I was the boss. Right. Not cruelty boss, uh-huh. but suggestion boss. Uh-huh. Trying something new. First of all, loving them. I knew I was loved by my aunts and uncles and what have you. Not my father, not uh-huh. my stepfather. And there were issues with my mother being an enabler. Uh-huh. But my aunts didn't have those present issues. So when they talked with me and I made suggestions or I shared with them because... It didn't take long for me to realize this was a real dialogue. Senator Rogers re-emphasized and um, drove that point home about when you talk to children and you give them what they're asking, you don't have to give any more. When they ask for more, you give that, but it's always the truth. So I realized that my Aunt Patty and my Aunt Cora and my Aunt Clara, they were talking to me. They really were. I sang at church, and by the time I was 10, they made me the choir director. And the reason they made me the choir director, I think, was because I was meddling in everybody else's part. I could sing soprano. <laughs> I could sing the alto. I was leading the tenor section, of course. And then there I was trying to sing bass. I didn't have any bass notes. <laughs> and this wonderful uh, choir director, Madeline, had put up with me enough. <laughs> she made me come over next to where she was at the piano. She said, now, sing this alto part. da 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 Right through it, she's all right. Now go stand in front of the altos and we're gonna teach it to them. I'll play it and you sing it with them. Mm-hmm. And that's how I became the choir director. That's why she said, Come and stand over here. I was still young and I stood there. She said, Now tell them when they come in, when it's time for this one, you point to that one. And she was literally giving me conducting lessons. And I found something inside of 
than just uh, we've come here together and we're going to sing uh, about Jesus Christ. Now, something very deep and personal is going on because my role among those church people was one of, well, if a Francois thinks about it and makes a commentary, we must take that seriously. I had made myself a member of the family to the extent that whatever we were embroiled in, sometimes an insight would come from a child and that child was welcome. So I learned to, first of all, to be very honest or as honest as possible because there were issues of homosexuality that I could not be honest about. And then there were uh, times when people were impatient or they were so defeated or discriminated against that they were, let me say, uninspired. They were negative. They were depressed. And I saw myself as a person who helped them to look deeper. I helped my family to look deeper. And in looking deeper, to come up with a different realization of who they were, just a few, I gave it back to them. They helped me understand who I was in certain ways. And then you, it was something even later beyond, even in university, and you were counseling people, and they turned to you and shared their problems, as I understand. I, even while I was traveling with the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble, yeah. we were going all over the world. You know, a lot of times we were in these huge, wonderful buses that are very mm -hmm. comfortable, but you're going from city to city, and you get off the bus and go to the hotel and travel. And one of the things that was evident to me and my ensemble was very insightful. They paid attention, but they stayed out of the way. And mm -hmm. that perfect strangers would come up, oh, Mr. Clemens, we have been waiting for you. Mm -hmm. Your method of singing American Negro spirituals is simply magnificent. We have been waiting to hear that sound on stage. People singing spirituals don't make a lot of money. And it's really mixed up with all that stuff about shame and humiliation of slavery, who, who's accepting it and who is in, in, in incredible denial. And so there were a, a group of people who were the canaries in the cave, as far as I'm concerned, who said, we need this. Don't stop, please. We want to encourage you. And they would say, we have just been waiting for someone like you, Mr. Clement. You're the answer to a prayer. Well, I wasn't ready for that. I said, and why? You can sing spiritual music anytime you want to. And they were saying to me, no, sir, it's not just singing them. It's understanding where they came from and the source. When you sing, you give us the impression that you are connected to the source. And I, I heard those people. I thought, no, you don't know where the message is going to come from because I sang for all white, all Italian, all German or British, whatever. And then here in America, many of the audiences were predominantly white. And my message was the same all the time. So I was learning that when I spoke, to be responsible, first of all. But when I spoke, people listened and paid attention. I call myself a singer's singer because many of the greatest singers have encouraged me they're the greatest artists that I have met. I mean, yes. I was called Dr. Clemens long before I got an honorary doctorate. And at first I rejected it. I said, no, 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 no. I don't have a doctorate. I just have a master's in news. They said, no, you're Dr. Clemens. Something about you. And so Doc, that was one of my names that sometimes people call it. What it was meant was there was a public acknowledgement of the people that I was working with that we were working together. They gave me permission to lead. Mm -hmm. I, 
never been at the back of the pack. Yes. I used to just stand up and the chemistry changes. So I, I've been aware of that. I, I wouldn't be lying if I, if I said something else. Mm -hmm. But the person who gave me the courage to be that person who stands up was my, my, the women in my life. They often had to stand up and get knocked down and stand up and get knocked down. And I didn't really uh, incorporate the greater society in a lot of that until Dr. King came along. Mm. And when Dr. King came along, I started paying attention outside of my circle of family, which was extensive. And I asked my mother a couple of times, why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we going over and supporting Dr. King? I want to go. And they didn't understand my my enthusiasm or my intent or my impelling. There was something pushing me to go and, and stand up what he was saying. Yeah. He was trying to do. There was a great need for it, and I didn't see how people could be passive. So I began to act on it. And in high school, you know, I had teachers, a couple of my teachers, Mrs. Poulins is the, the main one who stands up. She and I took to each other, and we began to not only have, I had two classes with her in the ninth grade and, and when I was a senior, I guess. And she began to recommend books for me to read. She took a personal interest in whatever was happening in my life. I could talk to Mrs. Poulins. She was one of the absolute first person outside of the family who, who said, this has got to be done for you. Now, you, you need to start reading James Baldwin. You need to read Mary Renault because she's written all about John, uh, Alexander uh, the Great, who all kinds of scholars say he was gay. I didn't choose to say those words to me. But, and I didn't realize until I had read about 20 books that she, she was trying to tell me, I know that you're gay, and, and I know that you need to, to, to tune into this if you're going to have a full life. Be this is a place where you can be real and you won't be judged negatively. Because mm -hmm. people do judge, but don't be judged negatively. Mm -hmm. And so I took over the choir. I started choosing repertoire. I'm a little bit of a fanatic about spiritual and gospel music. So James Cleveland, you know, and uh, the Clear Waters, the Caravans, I listened to them all the time. And I sang. Mm -hmm. I felt I could... I could contact the source that would make me heterosexual, make me normal, because I, I knew that I was connected in some ways. So even as a boy, I would walk down the street, I would sit under a tree somewhere in a park, I'd spend a little bit too much time alone, and that was the reason. I was trying to find my center, because I didn't have a single role model in my youth. Mm. I, I can't tell you how... how profoundly impactful that is, that mm -hmm. nobody is, is modeling the love of God mm -hmm. and uh, the love of the same sex, whether it's a woman or men, in your life. Why? Yeah. And at that time, I thought, well, is it because it's wrong? But as I grew, I began to understand uh, some of the fear, some of the ignorance, and some of the societal pressures that are immense. And there were so many men, what we call on the down low, mm -hmm. and women, you know, who were much more able to be affectional in the society. But the, uh, I was an observer. So I was pushed to the outside of the circles. 
I'm an extrovert and wanted to be in the middle. I was like, circle dancing around. But when I started dancing around, they said, oh, no, 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 no. You, you can't do that with that boy. You must shoot this girl over here. You're a boy. And uh, you must put that away. No, you cannot have that doll. And you can't go play jacks with the girls. Go outside and play football. Go outside. And, and you know, and I, I left because I realized that there were people who were hedging me in. I didn't go far. But I, I moved to the outside of the circle, and I didn't realize it, but I became an observer of life. Everywhere I went, I saw men and women participating in the ritual of loving and finding themselves, and I was not familiar with that. I never had a date the entire time I was in high school from my perspective. I started going through puberty, and I, I was very energetic sexually. I wanted to be. But I did not have a boyfriend. That's what I'm saying. And I didn't have a man that I could look up to and say, well, what's wrong? Why can't I, uh, like Nellie or Anna or whoever, like everybody else, I don't feel that. I never was able to verbalize that to anyone. So this book yes. is a role model. It's a for uh, young black boys in particular, but it definitely covers white boys, Latin boys, um, Asian boys, anybody who's asking, well, who am I if, I, if I'm not the, the guy who wants a girlfriend, if I'm not uh, not the guy who wants to get married and have five kids, or three, whatever, by this woman. Mm. That's one of the chapters. If you read the book, you know, I talked to Fred about my maternal instincts. And the more I analyzed it, the more I realized I think what it was is it's not only my understanding that I'm gay and that I'm attracted to men, but that I identify with the women who's had a certain value in prosperity in certain parts of the society if they had children. So I wanted to have a child. And that became an obsession when I moved to New York. And I did talk. In fact, Fred was the first person I talked with about this deep desire to be a maternal figure, not a paternal. And I knew the difference. And he did too. We talked about it. His feelings of paternal, he wanted to be a father and I wanted to be a mother. And and basically what it did was help me to not condemn myself and to analyze what I was feeling so that I could really articulate, even just for myself and him, what it is I was feeling and what it is that I wanted to do. I'm sorry, you were going to ask? Oh, it's just what you've said, it's just, it calls up so many questions and I'm just thinking about looking back and now you know, a generation, two generations later, the level of acceptance, you know, sexually and visibility and also in terms of civil rights. I mean, how do you take that in and how do you, you know, the things that you fought for and the things that were, with the, all the obstacles that were put in your way and all the different ways you had to, you know, navigate and find your your voice and your courage. And so what do you feel about that? And, and, and what do you think still needs to be done? How much does this mean to you? What does it mean to you? And are you willing to take that leap of, they call it leap of faith? And yeah. so I stepped off because I have anywhere else to go. And every time I stepped off into the, those areas, there were helpers, there was buoyant love and a sense of encouragement. Mm -hmm. That's what I got. They, this energy, and some people say the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit of God, or whatever, universe, first cause, was what made itself known to me. 
as I struggled, praying to be have this stain removed so that I could be an active part of society, there was a president saying, you're fine. You just, you just keep doing what you're doing. That is what you're supposed to be doing. I, I'm here with you. I'm here always. Now, what else do you need? And so I found strangers who were drawn to me, who were very, very kind to me because my I, I, that's how I got through Oberlin. Yeah. Well, my life at school, the principal said, come to the office. I had thought they were going to give me hell about something else. I get to the office and we're talking and he said, I just want to go to Oberlin. Yes, sir, I do. Well, have you uh, got a scholarship? Have you planned uh, how you're going to pay for it? And I was tremendously discouraged <laughs> and confused. I said, no, I haven't done that yet. He said, well, you got to hurry up. You only have a couple of months to save the money. <laughs> and I sat there and he said, now listen, young man, Oberlin is my alma mater. I went to school there. It's a great school. Oh, You've yes. chosen well. And as soon as I've been hearing about you, I thought I would sit down and have a talk with you. And he did. I stayed in that office maybe an hour, really talking with him. And he said, the Oberlin Alumni Club has meetings here in uh, Youngstown. Many of them are on the boards and what have you, Sheeton to Republic Steel, Duet Steel. So they were people of some means because those were the companies were thriving in the 50s, 40s at that time. So he said, I'm going to make a proposal. I said, yes. Yeah, I was totally confused. It was almost like he was interfering. But his interference was what I needed to hear. And I said, he said, I'm going to speak to them about possibly offering you a scholarship. Since uh, you, you haven't applied officially for one and you need one if you're going to go there. We think you would benefit tremendously because it's a great music school. They have a tradition involved in the Underground Railroad, which does honor to our history of this country. And so we, we like what you decide. And we're, I'm going to talk to the full body, and we'll be in touch with you. So sure enough, he did what he said. He went and spoke with them. They notified me that they would like to have me come and sing for them. Well, <laughs> I said, okay. So I went with a gentleman named uh, Ronald Gould, who had become my voice teacher. So... Uh, he goes to the alumni club, I go there, I do a concert, and they are wonderful to me after that. That first year, they paid for my education at, at Oberlin. Mm -hmm. And uh, frankly, uh, then the president and the treasurer has to meet with me when I got to Oberlin, and my voice teacher, Miss Ellen Rep. What? A, oh, my gosh, she was a giant of an opera singer, no, uh, Scandinavian, no, Norwegian lady, mm -hmm. who sang Isolde, you know, and... Um, other uh, dramatic Wagnerian roles mm -hmm. uh, until her thrombosis made it impossible for her to stand on stage. And then she turned to teaching. And my goodness, she was a wealth of experience and uh, insight and understanding. And she said to me one day, you come with me. We're going to go over and talk with George mm -hmm. uh, Langler and the other people over there. I want them to know how good you are and the fact that you need a scholarship official from the college. Well, that meetings was very, were very successful, and the Oakland alumni people simply earmarked 
a check that they gave to the college. This is for Francois scholarship. And I, that's how I went four years to Oakland College. And those people were profoundly relentless. They never, ever failed me. And every spring, I came back to Youngstown. And I thanked them, and I sat with them, and I talked. We had usually a brunch or a, a occasional dinner. And several of them I remained friends with for a long time until they died. It was a, a reservoir of love and support that I, I was getting from home. So I wasn't bereft. I just have to realize that it's coming from somewhere else, Francois. You're going to have to just wait to see what God is doing. And surely enough, somebody would step forward and say, you need this. I can tell you need this. I have it. Well, you had this this gift that you, of course, you know, added to, and that I, I guess it must have been it must have shone so brightly that they uh, wanted <laughs> to support that. And then that's really beautiful, and I think it also links back to, as well to Fred Rogers and the Mister Rogers neighborhood, and this idea that you know that we have a greater family, you know, and that there's uh, kindness yeah. everywhere, and if you as yeah. long as one opens one's heart to it and to the possibility of that. That you know, every yes. day can be you know a beautiful day in the neighborhood, right? Well, it can be, mm-hmm. but you have to wait because sometimes you don't know what's going to be. If you you don't have a prophetic insights, you don't look down the road and say, "Oh, I know this is going to be taken care of. I'm not going to worry." No, mm-hmm. you worry and you talk to people and you communicate, you know, what your situation is. And sure enough, oh, you're trying to do blah 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 blah. Well, I know that. I just come on, come over here. Let me show you. Let me talk to you. Sure. And that being an outgoing person helped that process. I think had I been an introvert, I would have sat there and nothing would have happened. Yeah, we have to. It's but, so interesting a vulnerability, you know, once you have the courage to. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was and I did. And I always found that there seemed to be somebody, somebody who steps up and says, Oh my goodness, Francois, is that what you were trying to do? Mm-hmm. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you say something? So I'm a, a little bit more open, not a little bit, a lot more, because when I'm talking, I'm telling the universe what I want. <laughs> and that's who sends the, you know, uh, I send the presence and the person. Uh, it's like having a dialogue. I think we have to understand that. I think that's what we're supposed to grow to so that we are having a dialogue with the universe. Mm-hmm. And whatever is happening around you becomes a partnership that you, things are just not not just happening to you, but you began to steer the, the, uh, the ship. I, I began to steer the ship. And I was, I was surprised at how, how beneficial, how successful that philosophy was. Because I have been taught, don't trust strangers. Don't, those people, they don't know your life. They don't understand who you are. And they're no good for you. You stay away from that. You stay away from them. Well, my experience was completely different. I said, oh, no, those people are nice. They're genuinely nice. Mm-hmm. I know they are. Something I feel inside of me tells me they are. Yeah. So I intend to, to, to link my, uh, my, my rocket to that energy, that, those people. And it was always a bit of a surprise to me, the black people who also had their issues with racism because mm-hmm. they have been lynched, you know, and mm-hmm. hurt and robbed and separated their families. So there are people who painted a dismal picture of white people. And there I was on this adventure of life and they were being, they were rolling out the red carpet for me. So I couldn't buy everything that they said. I just, I didn't yield, I didn't give over to it. 
And I found again and again that there was an answer, but it was not always from black people. Yeah, we, we uh, have to live together, I think, of that. Yes, yes, yes. In fact, my first real dialogue with spirit mm -hmm. basically just said, be kind. Be kind to everyone. And, and I honestly, I, first of all, I was just blown away that there was a deep voice talking very quietly to me. And I was listening. Be kind. Be kind to everyone. Okay. It's and that was it. I waited and waited for another encounter. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was quite a while before, I, you know... I didn't understand. If you can master that, that one, it, it's uh, that's enough, right? That was enough, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, we pointed you in the right direction, and you're doing it, and we are pleased. Mm -hmm. But we're not coming here every day and have this, have this uh, <laughs> Zoom meeting with you. You got it? Go. Go and run with it now. So I did. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many uh, people of all, you're right, all nationalities stepped in to my life because I opened myself up. You even traveled to Russia, and you were amazing. You had a few traveled quite a lot. It was interesting to hear about that too. Oh, I have, yeah. and I think that's one of the reasons one of my Harlem spiritual ensemble people, mm -hmm. which I also traveled with for twenty years, which we should say you found it. Yes, you have never met a stranger. Uh -huh. We we watch you, and everywhere we go. It seems like somebody is truly embracing you in a serious way and you are responding. But they're perfect strangers. You don't know these people, do you? I said, well, no. Mm -hmm. I don't know them in this earthly sense, but spiritually I, I've, I've responded to them. And they have responded to me. Therefore, I was never lonely in that sense. Mm -hmm. I wrote 6,000 pages on this journal. And then it became a chapter type thing. I went to a new city, I started a new chapter. Or I'd go, you know, two weeks or three weeks, and then I'd write about that period of spring of 2020. Mm -hmm. And so I collected all that. And as I said, a couple of years ago, before the book was published, mm -hmm. I had friends who read it. It was 6,000 pages. And he said, nobody's <laughs> going to read all this. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Which I said, this is yeah. what happened. I think that readers should read your book, but it's always so interesting for uh, a writer to read their own writing, to hear it in their own voice. Well, I made it. There's an audio version coming out, and it's going to be on Brilliant uh, Audio is the name of the The company that requested made the contract with Catapult is my publisher. Yes. And Brilliant Audio came to me and then said, we'd like to make an audio book for him, and we want him to read it. Do you have a particular song in mind? Yes, I do. And what are we about to listen to? Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Oh, that's a be one of my favorites. So let's Mine too, you know, Harriet Tubman with the chariot. Ah, and what a chariot. Among slaves, the doodle entendre. <laughs> she was the chariot coming to get them and yeah. take them north of the Mason-Dixon line.
a what a beautiful, powerful song, and to hear Very your powerful. interpretation. Is there another oh, song man, you'd I, like to include? Another song that I became tremendously identified with everywhere I used to go. They would say, "Would you sing this little line of mine?" And I say, yes, I'll be very happy to. Yeah. So, a, this is a lie of mine.
wonderful. I mean, it's just going to, I mean, you've had a, even if you just take that aspect of your life, your singing career, it's amazing. But then you also have this whole life where you've been, you know, embedded in children's uh, imaginations mm -hmm. for, I guess, three decades, you were Officer Clemens. So those are two engaging and rich careers in terms of life experience to have accomplished that. I would like to speak a little bit about those experiences too, because when you've been a part of people's childhoods they may experience art in all these forms later as adults but it's something special to be a, a part of people's childhoods and imaginations i agree i agree it's such a blessing to me hearing about francois clemens and his experiences in life has reminded me that mr rogers neighborhood has impacted all of our lives in a significant way in one way or another so I wrote a poem to celebrate the significance and also my reflection on what it means to be a neighbor in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It's still a beautiful day in the neighborhood. We are the legacy of good and kindness. As the block has gotten bigger, more lives begin to fill the corners from the green lights to highways. There are more kids these days living in a world that sometimes asks them to grow up too soon, to be a part of a system that's still figuring out how taxes really should work or whether a nine to five is enough to sustain human life. We barely get enough sleep at night. The dream gets a little more quiet. In that silence, we find ourselves face to face with a reflection of our younger selves who were promised a world where they could go out into the streets and see the beautiful day that was sung about on TV. We are all still neighbors. These are still our streets. The kids still ask us how to play. Even though we carry suitcases and baggage, we, at some point, just wanted to be happy. Maybe it's time to lace up those sneakers and put on our warmest cardigan, just to be a neighbor. And now, back to the podcast. And I, I don't mean these things arrogantly, I mean them very honestly, that the television um, came after me, Fred Rogers wouldn't let me go. Yeah. Um, I had no intentions of doing uh, children's television. I wasn't remotely interested. At 24, I wanted to do opera and Broadway and all of those things. And the universe said, now listen, this is what I have presented you with. And if you'll just rub some of the dust off there, you'll see it is gold-plated. It's the best in the whole world. And Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, it's where you belong. So it took a while, i say maybe two years, before I settled down and realized that there was a little bit more going on than what appears on the surface. Um, that had to do with uh, my role as a helper instead of the negative idea that I had about policemen. And Fred and I had incredible discussions about being Officer Clemens because my personal experience had been so tainted by what I had seen in Youngstown. I knew both sides of the coin and I didn't want to be one of those guys. I didn't want to be portraying something like that. But he talked about helpers. That was his magic word. And what we do when we're helpers. And so Officer Clemens did those things uh, on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I helped people organize things. I escorted people, particularly Queen Sarah. And um, there were times when I christened a waterfall. I sang next to the waterfall. Um, you know, there were many activities that gave me not just a neutral uh, attitude, but a, a positive attitude in the memory and the lives of those 
young people, those children who are watching the program. I'm telling you, all these employments uh, uh, um, thrived. It was always a surprise to me how much people loved the character. Yeah. And talked about it. And related to me that way when I would go somewhere. Hey, Officer Clemens! <laughs> and I was, uh, in New York, they were practically making me an honorary policeman at the <laughs> police station around the corner from where I live. And when I walked in, oh, oh, hi, Officer Clemens. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that sounds ridiculous. But that's what uh, the role was something that our audience, America, was was very happy to see me fulfill and encouraged me to go go this way, do this. Because I really thought it was heavy. It's too heavy and negative. Oh. Boys being shot in the back who had no weapons. and I just had a terrible time with that. Oh. Um, and then once I decided, I said, okay, think of it as you're on stage and you're doing uh, Puccini's La Boheme and you are Rodolfo for the day. You play Rodolfo and you walk off that stage and you are Francois Clemens. That is what saved me when I was Officer Clemens. But I did that for a while before I looked around and realized everybody was calling me Officer Clemens, no matter where I went. Uh, if I was at the Metropolitan rehearsing, if I was at Cincinnati rehearsing, if I was down in um, Atlanta or uh, Mississippi, Officer Clemens was there. Uh, I went to Korea. And they called the hotel and said, it's Officer Clemens there. Now, I had been filming that show for 10 years, 12 years, 13. And they were calling to ask if that's the real Officer Clemens. And they came, and they made themselves known and shared their experiences. You're right. You're, uh, you're in the psyche of people who are now 40, 45, <laughs> wow. 50, like that. And when they come and talk to you, it's an adult conversation. It's one that I absolutely welcome. Um, and... I think one of the things that I, I had to acknowledge to myself was I felt overlooked a lot uh, when I was with Mr. Rogers, not because of uh, something I had done, but there's a sense of uh, secondhood yeah. among white people. If you're not white, you you can be good, but you're probably there's probably somebody who is better. They they have this thing that 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 racial thing that I constantly felt acting out in that holiness could only be through Fred Rogers. Mm -hmm. Divine inspiration is only going to come through Fred Rogers. And we did it. That is not the truth. And I'm sure that's very, very opposite of his message or what he believes. That's so, right. Yeah. He never said anything remotely like that. He didn't behave like that. He was a, uh, a person who, in fact, I always find it an ironic thing to think about the fact that he was colorblind. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he was colorblind, he really that's was. funny. <laughs> he really was colorblind, and he could, could barely tell a blue from a gray. Because mm. we used to ask him, you know, like, you know how kids are. I was young, and to him I was a child, and I certainly played the role of a child. He played the role of a parent. I said, Fred, what color is this? I hold something up. And what color is this? <laughs> and he sat there. He was profoundly patient. Oh, Lord have mercy. He would sit there and say, well, I'm not sure, friends. Uh, <laughs> is it gray? Is it light gray? <laughs> is it dark gray? He was colorblind. Yeah. So that people don't know that, and they don't always play those silly games back behind off screen. And that he had a wonderful sense of humor and a wonderful sense of tolerance and patience, which carried over into his personal life. Um, so... 
when I had that moment with him when he came off stage at one of the um, filmings that they were doing at WQED, and uh, he um, was saying, "You, I like you just the way you are, and you know why and how, because you make this day a special day every day. And you know how? Just by being you. And that day I was in the studio, I swear he was looking in my eyes down into the very soul of me saying that. And I thought, well, that applies to the people he's talking to on, on the television, but not to me. That's my self-image. And when he got off stage, Johnny Costa, our very, very famous, wonderful uh, jazz pianist, was playing exit music, so everybody still had to be quiet. They were all very, very, very quiet. And then he walks forward to me, and I, I walk towards him. And I say, Fred, were you talking to me? <laughs> and he said, yes. I was talking to you. I've been talking to you for two years. Yeah. But you heard me today. Mm. Oh, my God. It was like the stars, you know, the 4th of July fireworks went off. And huh. God was, uh, descended, you know, from heaven. And I just fell into his arms and cried oh. because the acceptance was so profound. And I never saw him in my mind as a white man anymore. That was so superfluous. What was important was this spiritual thing, this man who had this gift of communication, this uh, uh, ability to pull me out of the ghetto into uh, universal love. It had nothing to do with material things. Because a lot of times that's what people think. If you're not making $300,000 a year, or $2 million a year, then you're, something is less. And Fred defied all of that. You know, you, you come here, he said to me, in metaphysical terms, you come here, you belong here next to me. He put me next to him. I was supposed to be there, but I didn't know it. He did. Uh, and I've I thought about it many, many, many times since his death that, he had wisdom that I did not have. And he saw what he was looking for in terms of the race problem in America, the gay problem, into the social struggles, the haggling that was going on with our civil rights struggle here in America. And he was looking for something to fulfill a certain area for completion and of, of the program. He brought in many unusual people as his guests. So it wasn't just that. Because I not only did the spiritual, those first two programs that I sang for him, but he invited me to come back. And then shortly after that, I just wanted to play a role and to be with him all the time. That was a tremendous surprise to me. What? You want me all the time? And I, I mean this sincerely, nobody else has. There were some also interesting aspects, that, as, you, as you mentioned, your childhood and even, you know, the struggles you had with your family and your stepfather. I'm thinking mm -hmm. about one scene mm -hmm. where you were kind of, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, you but there's some sort of... Into a Yes, yes, better for you to say it. And, and I wonder if that window wasn't there, we should say that you uh, managed to escape. <laughs> Your whole life, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened to me. You know, I'm not a tree climber and all that, you know, I'm not a mountain or rock or anything. And there I was, stuck up there with a little bit of 
girl that they had told, go upstairs and make a man out of him. Mm. They sent you this little college boy, Philly boy. I think that's what they called me, a Philly boy. Uh, you know, Philly is obviously a girl and a, and a boy because I was not, I was not chasing after women sexually. Yeah. And uh, when I got up there, I thought, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster until I said, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> it just popped into my head like that. <laughs> and I, she was upset and annoyed, but she said, well, go ahead. It's down there on the right. I went down the hall. Taking my time, and when I got in there, I saw that window, and it had a fire escape on it. <laughs> and, I mean, everything comes to you so fast, you don't have time to think. But I knew that was why I'm going to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And so I jumped on that. <laughs> I jumped outside of that window. I breathed that fresh air. And, my yeah. dear, it was not long before I was running down the street free. I never knew whatever happened or what my stepfather said or how he explained. I did not care. Yeah, well, well, I was out of that situation. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, well, it's not different for this. There's some people who go through that even now, but I'm I'm glad yes, they never accepted. I read about it, yeah. and uh, of course, it, it happens abroad, mm-hmm. but it happens right here in America, mm-hmm. and we have cases of people who have been murdered mm-hmm. just because they were looking at a man yeah. with affection or desire. That's what I should say with desire. And, I mean, there are places, you you know, we have uh, marriage now, same-sex marriage in this country. But there are places you cannot. Uh, you can't order the cake. You can't rent the, the place to dance or still have a celebration. The church won't bless you. I mean, all of that is still very, very active and still has to be addressed. I was with the wonderful Gail King on uh, oh, yes. CBS in the morning. Yeah, I and the one thing I remember from t- talking with her had to do with the fact that my story needed to be told. Yeah, you were, her, We should say words. that you were in a collection that she uh, edited an yes. anthology, yes. Yes, she did. And so I looked at things uh, a little differently mm-hmm. when she said it. I have to say the weight of uh, this woman mm-hmm. who seemed to have an insight. Yeah. And she articulated that she said there was stone wall in the village. Mm-hmm. There was another stone wall Dr. Clemens, on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And you were the leader of that. Mm-hmm. You played a role. You participated in a way that no other openly gay person or any person who admitted that he was gay had done. Right. I, I didn't realize it was time-sensitive historical. I did mm-hmm. not. I did it because all the other factors involved that made me a person was Fred Rogers. But history was also involved. Mm-hmm. There were no black Men are people on children's television nationally, and there were no regular guys who came on a regular basis, and I was gay, which means, you know, I had that thing with Fred, and he said, you can't do that, and so I made my peace with it, because I I knew that I was a black former, a member of AFTRA, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, and... There were maybe 10 of us in the union. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. Nationally. <laughs> yeah. And so I said, you know, you have eyes on you, Francois. Yeah. They're always looking, and many of them are not looking at you for a positive reason. And so Fred's idea of not going to that gay bar made a lot of sense to me. It was sad. It was very, very deeply wounding sad. But I knew that I had to stand up. I could not bring shame to the race. 
and to um, the confidence and love that Fred had placed in me. I, I had to do honor to that. Yeah, I, I understand. It's a difficult, and we should speak a little bit more about, like, sacrificing, like if they say, choose your battles or your causes so that you can, you can only work on one at a time, my people feel. You Basically, know. you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, and the thing was, I had to let a lot of other things go. Yes. In order to uh, be faithful to the um, role that I was in and the job that I had to do. We I should had also say that, for, I mean, you also married for, for a time, for two. Yes, I married a woman, and she was my high school friend. I don't want to say sweetheart, but... Uh -huh. We were friends in high school. In fact, she was a wonderful conversationalist, a wonderful yeah. writer, poet. I loved spending time with her. And so it just seemed, from what people were, older people whom I thought were wise that were saying, it only stood to reason that in time I was going to be straight. This uh, stuff that I was going through would be finished. I'd be through it. And she was there, and I was talking with her yeah. at some point. And I swear, I never proposed to her, but she, that's what she heard. Yeah. And she said, are you proposing to me? <laughs> <laughs> I sat there just as dumb. Because first of all, I had come from such a crazy place. I didn't, I didn't say anything about marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't say anything about the two of us, but she was my best friend. Yeah. I spent hours on the phone with her. I went to see her. She came to my house. There were people, you know, who chanted around about us being an item, but we were not. So that that's... The one time the extrovert was very, very passive. I just, I was just watching. I was, just, I was watching, and so my, my stunning, <laughs> my silence, she thought was saying yes. That's a proposal, and yeah. uh, I think that somebody could feel that if you don't tell them, no, that's not what I meant. And I, I wasn't strong. I was weak. And so she grabbed the ball and started running with it. I thought, well, maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Okay, let it go. And I never objected. I knew what the older men had told me about homosexuals and how sick they were and how outcast they were in society and the difficult. So they said they, they were pederasts. Yeah. Mess around with children. Do all that. That's not me. So I must be straight. It's just going to come a little later. Yeah. So I allowed myself to be. They planned all around me. Mm -hmm. I, I made almost no decision concerning me on such an important platform in life. I did what society essentially expected me to do. Yes. Well, I mean, it's it's people, I, I can't understand it fully, you know, and people and young people who've had more or less, well, a great deal of acceptance in comparison can't really understand, you know. So it's just you did within the circumstances within that generation. And so, and so uh, you could be a role model. Is, is anybody on your uh, staff, in fact, are they gay? Yes, we have a great many. And my brother is gay. Oh. And, you know, and a number of the people we've interviewed, my last interview, he was, is Doug Wright, the playwright, who is gay. Oh, no, 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 no actually, the interview we before that, before, between that was with a John Benjamin Hickey just the other day, who is also gay and has acted in a number of plays. So I think that we have a good variety of voices. I love learning about different people and cultures. And, and it's all for well, the students. Sure. I love, love sharing that with students. Because I think that it's really important, and what others have said to me is, is that we need to expand our canon, right? Then we need to yes. honor all these diversity of voices. Yes. You know. Because there's a lot going on, and it's important. It affects us. 
Yeah. You have to know what's going on. Yeah, and it's all about one generation inspiring the next. And I'm so proud of our participating students and of this generation because they really are more open to acceptance. They are like born colorblind, many of them, or as close yeah. as possible, right? So I love listening to them too. And they're so creative. I love sharing what great artists and teachers and writers such as yourself and then and then we invite their creative responses and they come back with you know we might get a musical response or written response you know visual art so i guess for some of our last questions thinking about the future you spoke about wonderful teachers in your life but thinking about technology and the environment and their kind well, of world. i had a traditional musical education at overload carnegie mellon but then i got into television and yes. it's, those rules are totally different then mm-hmm. uh what i learned in the academy that would have me on the operatic stage mm-hmm. and now i taught at middlebury college for about 25 years yes. not quite and that learning experience was so rich with people mm-hmm. i have what i call cosmic children because there were poor little rich kids who were mm-hmm hungry for an emotional anchor. Yeah. Kids who were, money was thrown at problems that they had rather than the time and the love of their parents who were very busy making a financial fortune but losing their children. And so when they finally got here, they were they were so lost and hungry that they, they opened my heart. I'd already been open to uh, having cosmic children in New York City when I had this maternal uh, awareness so it just grew stronger when I got here in the middle of it because I thought, oh, I'm going to put that away because these are well-off kids from families. With, if there are problems, they saw to they saw a psychiatrist or, or shrink or therapist or whatever. And um, so that's that's not going to be the situation there, Francois. Well, so the opposite, I got up here and it's maybe the neediest place I've ever been. And so I, as I say, I opened my heart to my cosmic children. I began to have cosmic daughters and cosmic sons. And what it just meant was I was establishing my own family. And it was quite extensive. And I learned so much from being with them and gathering us together. And when I gathered us together, what we talked about and what we shared, um, it was everything. It was a love, a, a, a feeling that you're at the wrong place, homesick for your, your dog, or whatever it was, we talked about it. And holiday times, because a, a substantial number of them were from abroad. They uh, that was a huge international program here. Yeah. I think of the students uh, dealing with uh, some language program, or from France or Romania or Nigeria or Senegal, that kind of thing. They're literally from everywhere: China, um, uh, Korea, and Japan. Uh, everybody uh, has a friend or acquaintance, you know, who is. Uh, an immigrant on some level. And I often found myself in my home, there might be 12, 13, 14 kids who came over after dinner and we would chat and talk about Obama running for presidency, what it meant, those kinds of things. And everybody was international except me. Huh. Every single one of us. I would say, well, this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And uh, a lot of things happened to me. That's going to be my next book. Yes. I'm, I'm going to write about what it felt like for the first time in my life to eat with my hands. As an adult, forgive me, <laughs> as an adult to eat with my hands, in a, uh, sitting at a table in my house, there were 12, 13 boys, maybe two girls, and we were all dipping in the same dish. 
Um, I, I had issues with that. Lord have mercy, I had issues. But I'm I'm proud to say I passed the test because they they told me about it later. They said we wanted that you would eat with us, that you would be one of us. And I I consider it a tremendous uh just a tremendous honor, humbling that they wanted me to join that inner inner circle of theirs. They they felt I belonged in there and they wanted me to come in, but I had to pass my initiation. <laughs> well, and I did, and I don't know, you know, we have a thing about sanitation in this country, and of oh, course no. we need it now, what we're going through, but I'm trying to set an example, mm-hmm. I want to reach out, I want to enfold them in unconditional love, but we don't eat off the same plate. Another, you know, that reminds me of a very, you know, notable scene in one of the episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood where he washed his feet, where you washed uh, yes. your feet. Yes. There your we are feet. again. Yes. Yes. But um, you know, it has become an iconic scene because it's the, it's the core of the truth of what this country is about. A black man and a white man sitting together in a small space, very, very intimate. Yeah. And the last time I was there, I sang, there are many ways to say I love you. And to sing that song, and, you know, there are people saying black people aren't superior, black people shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that, can't go here, can't go there. And there there was an icon, the, the, the absolute uh, brilliant example of their love, Fred Rogers, sitting in a, uh, outside of his house with our feet in the same water and saying, listening to me saying there are many ways to say I love you. And mm-hmm. him saying how proud of me was and yeah. how, you know, how wonderful it has been to be around with me. Mm-hmm. And I've had people say to me that that, that scene played in my house. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of some of the racial things that we used to say. And uh, it would be raised to be racist. They told me that. Yeah. But when they saw that, Exit. The family stopped, mm-hmm. and the kid said, "Mr. Rogers is not pregnant. I'm pregnant unless it's <laughs> Mr. Rogers is not prejudiced." Yeah. And that was the statement that they carried with them. Fred Rogers is not a racist. He's not prejudiced. And on Facebook, that there's a website that says, "What would Mr. Rogers do?" <laughs> there is. And there are people who who are at different stages of development uh-huh. who need to be reminded of that from time to time. Now, what exactly do you think Mr. Rogers would do in this situation? I think what was yeah. so brilliant in terms of you know, it was a very, you know, it was it's a big, high special effects show, and yet week after week it brought young people's audiences, and there was a message to every show, and, it, mm-hmm. and there was the simplicity of it, and the kindness, and love, and equality, yes. and it was just beautiful. And then what's also very interesting, and that we're always told that, oh, you need to have distractions, we need to go faster and faster, and all this stuff, and it needs to be so expensive, yes. but yes. there was this slowness, and silence, mm-hmm. and sincerity. It's very moving. Yes, and it was deliberate, it was thoughtful, you're mm-hmm. right, it was slow. Mm-hmm. And that taste allows you to examine mm-hmm. and to interpret and understand better what's happening to you. You, yeah. you know, sometimes you need time. Yeah, it's, and it's not entertainment, it's an education, it's a conversation, really. Yes, it's a mm-hmm. conversation. Mm-hmm. And so 
Fred had the gift of helping people to slow down and by his relentless decision to be himself. Yeah. He was allowing all the children watching to say, Mom, I, I need more time to, to do that. I need to think about that more. He allowed us to have that in our society because I thought there was always, there was, everybody was trying to convince him to do more cartoons and do them faster. Yeah. And he absolutely resented that. He said, mm -hmm. no. That's not who we are. It's not what I'm going to do. It's really lovely the his ability and uh, collectively, because it's a whole group, to mm -hmm. have these adult conversations and to face difficult yes. subject matter, and then with the silences that allow people to feel like they were being listened to. And you know, there's one of the things that I do like. Mm -hmm. My audience today is uh, mostly adults. Yeah. Uh, because I go around. When they did the movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor, I did maybe 50 appearances with the movie. And oh, yes. They had Q&A afterwards. Yeah. And they would ask questions about the, the, the neighborhood and about Fred and all, all kinds of questions that, that they wanted answers to. Sometimes that Q&A lasted for a couple of hours because they were so curious about this childhood experience that it lifted them up and mm -hmm. carried them to such a significant place. And they wanted to share that. And so sometimes you're just sitting there listening to one person after the other testify to the deep meaning and deep growth that happened through the principles that he shared with them at such a young age. It's uh, so beautiful to hear that. And I want to thank you. You've been giving yourself for over 50 years and... It's, it's a beautiful legacy, and anyone who you know, wants to learn more about that should definitely uh, read Officer Clemens. You've lived a, a beautiful life, and thank you for your generosity in sharing it with us. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Paolo Banzon. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your own creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.